0: Boris Johnson's allies
1: breathed a big sigh of relief as the Met closed their investigation into the Partygate scandal with no more fines for the PM. The police have decided uh, that
2: it's all over. Um, They've handed out those fines that they want to hand out. The Prime Minister has apologised for the birthday cake incident. I'm sure he and, frankly, the rest of the country now want to move on to those
1: really big issues, the war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis... Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be examining the fallout from the end of the police investigation into rule-breaking parties at the heart of government, as you heard Minister Kip Mulhouse reference at the top. Should the Prime Minister fear the fallout from the full investigation by Whitehall official Sue Gray, or is he now safe and dry? Chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will discuss with special guest Paul Goodman from Conservative Home. And later, we'll dig into the economics of the UK's cost of living crisis. Inflation hit 9% this week, and pressure is growing on the government to do more, something, anything, to help those struggling to make ends meet. But what exactly could that be? Economics editor Chris Jowes and consumer editor and host of the FT's Money Clean podcast, Claire Barrett, will explore. Thank you for joining the pod. It's been six long months since the Partygate scandal took off after media reports painted a picture of mass rule breaking at the heart of Whitehall during the coronavirus pandemic. It's been four months since the Met Police opened their investigation into whether the law was broken, but finally, their work finished on Thursday with a total of 126 fines. To the surprise of many across Whitehall, no further fines were handed out to Boris Johnson, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, or the head of the Civil Service, Simon Case, raising some baffling questions about what exactly the Met were up to. With all those fines, some reiterated calls for the Prime Minister to go, like the opposition leader, Sir Keir Starmer. Well, what the
2: investigation has shown is industrial-scale law-breaking in Downing Street at 120 or so fines, and that reflects a culture, and the Prime Minister
1: sets the culture. But Sir Charles Walker, the senior Tory MP who called on the PM to resign in February, undertook a rather rapid U-turn and said he changed his mind.
2: No, I never wanted him to be down and out because I've always had huge personal affection for the Prime Minister. I just felt his position was unrecoverable. And it seems that I was wrong. I was wrong. Fundamentally, the Prime Minister is going to continue in number 10 now. In fact, strangely, it could well be that the leader of the opposition finds
1: himself now in a position where he will face calls for his resignation. Well, Robert Trimsley, great to have you back on the pod as always. It was Palpable in Downing Street, the relief that this party gate probe by the police is over. But 126 is an awful lot of fines when we for, don't forget the Prime Minister said that there were no parties, rules were followed at all times, and there were no laws were broken.
3: It's one of those interesting things, isn't it, where when one, when we look back on this with a bit of distance, I think we're going to conclude that, ironically, the thing which will have saved the Prime Minister, and I think he is, as everybody is concluding, safe for the time being, the thing that will have saved him is the involvement of the police. The announcement of their investigation came just when the Sue Gray report was expected to be published. The focus then switched not from what she was going to say and what moral authority, moral statements she made, but onto whether the police actually find him. And they've only found him in one case. So he can, to some extent, say, look, I've more or less got away with this. That one fine. It was just a bit of birthday cake. No one's very bothered about this. The public has already made up their own mind on this already. So one shouldn't confuse getting away with it in terms of salvaging his leadership with getting away with it in terms of public opinion. But the fact that that we got diverted down the police track, which seemed like something which would be a death blow to the prime minister at one point, has in fact been his salvation. Because when the Sucre report does eventually come out, we think it's next week, but there could be all kinds of hiccups. When it comes out, There'll be a sort of, yes, yes, it's really awful, but, you know, we knew all this already dimension to it. There'll be lots and lots on the whole culture of Downing Street and the whole culture of the organization that he presided over, which I think will be very, very damning indeed. But he'll have a response to that because he'll say, be able to say, look, a lot of the key people have gone. I'm in the middle of
1: reforming my entire organization. So, you know, this is all a bit historic. Paul Goodman, it's a delight to have you back on the podcast as well. You've been pretty critical at how the Met Police have handled this. And when they announced the end of Operation Hillman, which was investigating Partygate on Thursday, they set out some more details about who and why they find. But there's still a lot we don't really understand here. And I think the one thing that has puzzled people I've spoken to is that that surprise birthday party for the Prime Minister in June 2020, the Prime Minister was fined, his wife was fined, the Chancellor was fine for being in the cabinet room and for having a piece of cake as ambushed by cake as, well as famously known. But Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, was also in that room and hasn't been fined. And that's just one example where there seem to be huge inconsistencies that no one can get their head around.
2: For all we know, next week, Sue Gray will damn him black and blue. There will be an enormous crisis. The Conservatives will lose these by-elections coming in June. He will then again be damned black and blue by this inquiry, by the Committee of Privileges, into whether he misled the Commons over gate. He'll have to go. That said, that particular train of events now, as Robert said, is unlikely. This morning, Boris Johnson must feel he was born under a lucky star. I mean, you think about this. His main political opponent, externally, Keir Starmer, is now in a hopeless position really largely because of the way he himself has allowed Boris Johnson to madden and frustrate him over Partygate because of the Durham event that took place. Starmer really is now not in a sort of great position to uh, get up and raise the subject, so he's going to have to change it. And Boris Johnson's main internal problem, Rishi Sunak, who a few months ago had this great considerable standing of his own, he now has also had the tarnish taken off him by also being fined. So in a sort of sense, Boris Johnson is winning out at the moment precisely because he knows so many people have low expectations of him. And he can say, well, look, you know, unlike Kilskama, I'm not a hypocrite. I've been simply fined for being surprised by a birthday party with a bit of cake. Look, even, even my chancellor's been fined. None of us really are in the clear over this. So let's put it all behind us and move on to the next thing. Forward to victory. I mean, that's what he'll say. And the astonishing thing is that he's got a chance, at least for the time being, of pulling
1: it off. Now, Robert. It's obviously not entirely home and drive because, as Paul just talked about, we've got the Sue Gray report. And as the FT's reported, that report is now being rapidly finished as of Friday. And we're expecting it to be made public probably about Wednesday, could be a bit before, could be a bit after, depending how that is. How damning. Do you think this is actually going to be? Because I've spoken to some civil servants who worked on the report, and earlier in this whole process, they said that they thought it would be so critical of the PM, he would be forced to resign. But then I spoke to people close to the process on Thursday, and they're saying, you know what? The fact he hasn't been fined again, I don't think this is going to be the nail in the coffin. What in it could still cause problems for the PM? Well, I think the problem
3: is, in terms of, forcing him from office. I, th- I think we've all ascertained that the Prime Minister has pretty well superglued himself to Downing Street. It's going to take an awful lot to force him from office. What I think the fundamental issue has always been that the only thing that was ever going to remove the Prime Minister since the decision was fundamentally in the hands of his own MPs was when they decided that he was going to cost them the election and their seats. And secondary to that was when they therefore thought there was someone who was a better bet. I think what we can see now is they're not going to make that decision. Some of them made the decision, as Paul, I think, rather brilliantly wrote a while back, made that decision by not making a decision. And so it's quite hard to see what can be in this report that would change that calculation. I think it will be awful for him. I think lots of people will read it and look at what a mess and what chaos there is in Downstream that he, that he presided over. I think there'll be lots and lots of moral censure. but people have made up their minds on this already. It's very hard to see what will be in that report that would fundamentally change the minds of people who have already made their minds up. And so what it will do is it will add to the burden that Boris Johnson places on his own political party. He's already weighing them down in the polls. It will add to that burden. It will probably keep him in a state of suspended animation with a number of his MPs who would actually like him, the number who would actually like him gone, but don't see a way past it yet, don't see an alternative that's back aren't frightened of Keir Starmer, which I think is a really important point. As long as they're not that frightened of Labour, they feel they're competitive. I don't think it's easy to see what could be in that report that would become a killer blow. The things that are going to do for Boris Johnson probably are always the things that we're going to do for him until this interval, which is non-delivery, the cost of living, the sense that he has disappointed people and is not doing what he promised to do. The sense of chaos around his government. This is a government with a majority of 80, still more than two years to an election that seems completely frozen and unable to get its act together and do the things it's promised to do. So I think that's the fundamental underlying fault in the government. And I think Sue Gray is just going to pile another log on the fire, but it's not going to change the fundamental calculations.
1: And there are plenty more logs on top of that, Paul, as well. We've got two by-elections, the Wakefield by-election and the Tiverton-Homerton one, both of which I think are expected to go against the Conservatives. Labour will almost certainly take back Wakefield and um, following the charging of their former Tory MP Imran Ahmed Khan. And in Tiverton-Homerton, the Lib Dems are already lining up to try and take a good chunk out of that. So if you put Sue Gray, very critical of the PM and the way that he's managed, even if it's not damning, plus the by-elections. And then, as we're talking about later in the podcast, the cost of living crisis, it does all start to add up. But it does remind me of something that a former person close to David Cameron said to me when I was discussing with them. They said, everyone else always thinks it's someone else's job to get rid of Boris Johnson. And that very much feels like the space we're in now for people who want him out. And there's another point, which is that there are
2: obviously people in the parliamentary party who want him gone. But here's the crucial point. Even if Sue Gray is very bad for him, even if both the by-elections are lost, and you can't believe there's a Conservative seat at the moment anywhere in the country that would be safe in a by-election, and even if this report from the Privileges Committee is damning, And the point is this. His opponents won't move until or unless they think they can actually win a ballot. They are terrified... Of triggering a ballot, getting the necessary number of, of signatures, 54, I think it is, and then losing. Because once you've lost, you cannot, under the rules at present, have another challenge for a year. Now, his opponents could trigger a ballot, fight it, lose it, then try and change the rules. But if they can't, time will run out and we'll get to next summer with, you know, maybe six months before a general election and it will then be too late. So, Boris Johnson's opponents have got, if you just look at the world from their point of view, and you just for a moment put aside these really big issues, like everything from the by-elections of insider interest to the cost of living, everybody's interest. If you just... Forget the big landscape view for a moment and look at it through the kind of cramped eyes of Boris Johnson's opponents. They are
1: terrifying to move in case they call a ballot and he wins. And I think that's the feeling as we record this, Robert, is that first of all, there's been talk of some MPs actually withdrawing letters of no confidence. But there is that feeling, you know, I spoke to one very critical rival of Boris Johnson's on Thursday, and this person was thoroughly depressed and said once again, and to use Paul's excellent phrase they used in a column, the greased albino piglet has slid through the legs of the butchers and runs oaking towards open country. It's a lovely metaphor to adapt what David Cameron once described Boris Johnson as, but that is the general feeling: is that despite all this, nothing has quite landed on him. And if they were to move against him, he'd probably emerge victorious, and then you and then you're certainly stuck with him until the election.
3: Yeah, I think that's completely right. One of the key facts about Boris Johnson, one, one, one of the things that makes him such a politically potent operator, is the lack of artifice about his moral shortcomings. You know, he, there is no pretense with Boris Johnson; he doesn't set himself up as any kind of moral figure. Everybody knows that he'll slither his way out of difficulties, that he'll break the rules wherever he can, if he can, if it suits him. And when you see him on television talking to the public, you, there's often that grin in his face when he's saying something that he knows to be completely untrue, which is, you know, I'm playing the game and everybody's on, in on this great joke with me. You know I'm playing the game. I'm, I'm just saying what I have to say. You know I don't believe it. I know I don't believe it. But it's quite refreshing in a way to voters who think Boris Johnson doesn't talk down to them. And therefore... It means he can get away with an awful lot as long as he is delivering for people. As long as people who voted for him think he's doing what I put him there to do, they're going to cut him a ton of slack that they would cut almost no other politician. So this is the fundamental issue. He will rise or fall on his delivery What we'll do for him in the end is when Conservative MPs look at the situation and go, he's not delivering, our voters think he's not delivering, we've got to make a change. And even though we're not sure who it is, they'll be better. We're now at the place, but we've got
1: to make the change anyway. Until that moment has arrived, he's going to keep on getting away with it. Well, Paul, following the conclusion of the Met inquiries, we saw some efforts to try and deal with that. And again, whenever you speak to Boris Johnson's allies, they talk about how he was successful in City Hall when he had a good apparatus and good people around him who could help deliver on his policy priorities and we've obviously been through the Mark 1 Johnson Downing Street which was the Vote Leave team, that ended in tears. We've been through the Mark 2 Downing Street which was the Dan Rosenfeld Downing Street, that ended in tears. We're now onto the Mark 3 Downing Street led by Steve Barclay the Conservative MP, that has not yet ended in tears and the way they are trying to reshape things is by creating this new office for the Prime Minister and it was announced on Thursday that essentially the Cabinet Office has been broken into and all of its economic and domestic priorities are being hived off into this new office led by a different permanent secretary. Do you have, given those Mark 1 and Mark 2 struggles of Johnson's Downing Street, do you have faith that this could actually work and deliver in the way Robert just discussed? It's
2: harder for Boris Johnson to get rid of Steve Bartley and Andrew Griffiths, who's coming to do the policy precisely because their colleagues... Boris Johnson needs the parliamentary party, he'll carry on needing it for a while. And so I think they're fairly well entrenched. Whether or not it works any better, we will have to see. I'm a bit sceptical because I think a kind of leitmotif of Boris Johnson's career is that He's had a couple of people who have been able to manage him. There was Stuart Reid, his great deputy editor at The Spectator, and Simon Milton when he was mayor of London. But basically, Boris Johnson doesn't really want anyone managing him, and that's why he got rid of Dominic Cummings. What he likes to do is to sort of play the field, take lots of advice, keep his own counsel, and eventually make up his mind. Not before, sometimes... Someone thinks he's given them a commitment, which he hasn't actually given. And I really don't see that changing. So what, one might ask, can possibly save him, given this chaotic style of government? And I think the answer is the other side of the coin. What keeps Tory MPs hopeful really is the other side of the coin, which is... Labour, for all the Tory difficulty in the local elections, it's probably fair to say that voters are not yet thinking about having to make a serious choice about an alternative government. Right or wrongly, Conservative MPs think Keir Starmer is very predictable, that you can see him coming, that he is yet another person who's allowed Boris Johnson to get under his skin, irritate him and make him give commitments and take positions he shouldn't have taken, like his claim at the time that Boris Johnson should quit merely because he was being investigated by the police. Where did that leave Keir Starmer room to go when he himself was investigated by the police in Durham? So rightly or wrongly, and it, you know, it may turn out to be wrongly, conservative MPs really not frightened of Starmer, and this above all is keeping Boris Johnson's head above water.
1: And I think Paul's hit on the final point, Robert, which is that in the opinion polls, Labour has kind of shifted ahead a bit. Keir Starmer has certainly got ahead in terms of who you'd like to sort of lead the country and be the best prime minister. But it was one Tory strategist said to me this week, the polls don't matter because people are being asked for their opinion. They're not being asked, who would you like to actually lead the country? And people aren't really thinking in that vein. And I guess the government does have the space to do that over the next kind of 18 months but as Paul said it's sort of hard to imagine that actually delivering in the way that voters could then say well actually you know what we're going to change our minds entirely so it's very hard to predict isn't it where we're actually going to end up I think you're completely right you know
3: when one looks back to Previous eras of government unpopularity, you know, Thatcher in the mid '80s. Uh, there was a period in, in, more recently when, when Ed Miliband was looking quite popular against, or, or the Labour was looking quite popular against against the Conservative government. The point is, the polls will often show this. What they don't indicate is enthusiasm for the alternative. So it's a cheap way to say I hate the government at the moment is to say I'm, I'm not going to vote. For, I'm going to vote for someone else. When you're staring down, you know, that ballot paper and looking, think "Am I really going to make Keir Starmer prime minister?" That's when it really counts. And what we're seeing is a lack of enthusiasm for Labour. What's happening in the polls is all about how much people are unhappy with the current government. And that's obviously the first and vital precondition. For a change of government and for an election defeat. But at some point, people then have to switch and focus on the alternative. And Kirsten has done quite a lot to drag Labour back from the Jeremy Corbyn era, but they're not looking at the alternative and thinking, yeah, we really like the idea of them as him as Prime Minister and Labour in power. So awful lot of work for Labour still to do to turn the dissatisfaction with
1: the Conservatives into satisfaction with them. Robert and Paul, thank you very much. So Boris Johnson may have survived Partygate but the next challenge for his government is obviously the cost of living crisis. With inflation hitting 9% this week and dire warnings from the Bank of England, there's a growing sense the government is not doing enough to act. Whether it's tax cuts, more spending on benefits, or a package to help with energy prices, there's much crossfire between number 10 and number 11 Downing Street about what measures should be taken, if any, while the Treasury just wants to wait and see how sustained this crisis is. Prime Minister's Question Time this week, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer exchanged barbs about whether enough is being done. Working people across the country can't afford to wait while he vacillates.
2: It's time to make his mind up. Nothing could be more transparent uh, from this exchange than their lust to raise taxes on business. Uh, uh, Mr Speaker, we we don't relish it. We don't want to do it we don't want to do it. Of course we don't want to do it. We believe in jobs and we believe in investment and we believe in in growth. One minute they're ruling it in, the next they're ruling it out. When will he stop the hokey-cokey and just
1: back Labour's plan for a windfall tax to cut household bills? Well, Chris Giles, welcome back to the podcast. We'll unpack all that now. Let's start with the overall fiscal picture. And as I mentioned at the top, we had those inflation figures this week. How bad do you see it?
4: Well, for households, it's really very bad indeed. I don't think we can sugarcoat this at all. We've got inflation running at the highest level in the UK for over 40 years at 9%. It's quite likely to go higher still later this year to perhaps around the 10% mark. It all depends on what happens to energy prices in the autumn. And we don't have, even though wages are rising much faster than the Bank of England would like, they're not rising as fast as prices, so people are getting worse off and with inflation for the poorest households being more like eleven percent, not nine percent, and lots of them are on benefits which have gone up by just three percent, they are squeezed like never before. And obviously, they haven't got the incomes to be squeezed. You know, you can squeeze me. I don't like it, but I'll just have to save less or, or spend a bit less. So there's a
1: real, real problem for people on the lowest incomes. Well, Claire Bowen, it's wonderful to have you on. Podcast, a nice crossover with the FT's other fine audio products. Here we've seen some quite apocalyptic warnings to use the uh, the phrase of the governor of the Bank of England, but also discussions this week from Martin Lewis, the money saving expert, of saying that there could actually be civil disobedience. Things are going to be get that bad. Do you think that's overegging it, or is there some actual truth to that?
5: No, I don't think that he's overegging it at all. And if Martin Lewis is saying this, then my goodness. The cabinet need to listen. I mean, the holy trinity, if you like, of of problem areas for people at the moment are energy bills, but also petrol, fuel costs are at a record high, and then food, which is really starting to push up bills. Now, these are things, like Chris said, you can't avoid, you can't not eat, you can't not have electricity, although increasingly more people are self-disconnecting themselves if they're on prepayment metres, which is an absolute tragedy. But If you are on a low income, you just simply haven't got the ability to cope with these rising bills. Now, one way that we can already see that lower income households are reacting to this is by cancelling direct debits, typically for their energy bills, because they went up in April. And if you look down the barrel of this, if you've got the choice of having a direct debit of several hundred pounds coming out of your account every month or spending that money on food to feed your family... It's completely unsurprising that people are thinking that they've got no choice and that in order to take back control, they're having to do this. But because of the way bills are structured, if you cancel your direct debit, not only are you going to get into trouble with your energy company, it's immediately going to put your bills up by around 7% because you get a small discount for paying on direct debit. And then if you cancel your direct debit for council tax, which many people are also considering doing to even out the peaks and troughs, That's the way that this £150 benefit for energy bills is being delivered back to households. Now, in my area of London, in Hackney, we've just been informed by the council that unless we pay our council tax by direct debit, we're not going to be able to apply for that £150 discount until late May or June. So the poorest households are having to wait even longer for that money. When October comes, if we see the kind of bill rises that the energy companies are predicting, so from around £2,000 a year for the average bill to 2600 700 maybe even 2900 some of the estimates have been, that is when things are really going to get bad. Because in October, when it's chillier, you can't just switch the heating off as you can now in May. You're going to have to spend some money on heating. And I think that is really the point at which people are going to say enough is enough.
1: Now, Chris, obviously, inflation, as the government of the Bank of England has made quite clear this week, is not the UK government's fault here. A lot of these pressures come from the sanctions on Russia and the energy crunch there, but also, of course, supply chains and winding following the coronavirus pandemic. So there's all this call people to do things but what is there really the government can do about that crucial thing of inflation which is driving so much of the other problems? Let's take it to
4: who's who's got the responsibility. So the Bank of England has a responsibility to get inflation down. It, it cannot feel at all comfortable with inflation at 9%. We shouldn't blame it too much for a lot of the rise. That's not the bank's fault. But if the bank allows inflation to become sort of sustained too high, it falls to, let's say, four and doesn't really drop back to the 2% target, then that is entirely the Bank of England's fault. And they know that. So they will be raising interest rates further from now on. And the question is how much further? Obviously, let's be really brutal about this. Why do you raise interest rates? Well, to add more pain to household finances, so people spend less, and to raise unemployment, so people don't ask for wage increases. So that is why you're doing it, to increase the pain on households, so that you get inflation sustainably back to 2%, which is in the long term, best for people. The Bank of England has been very terrible at being clear about what it's doing. It doesn't seem to like giving the Hard message, a bit like Norman Lamont in 1991 when he said, if it's not hurting, it's not working. But that really is actually what the Bank of England's trying to do. So that's the bank. And then the government, its job, because the bank can't determine the distribution of income. That's not the central bank's role. It can just determine the overall amount of spending in the economy to get inflation to its target. Then the government's job is then to decide who's actually going to bear the pain. So it has within its power to increase benefits or to redistribute income. It can increase tax more on richer people and give that to poorer people so that the overall pain is, in some sense, better distributed across the country. But we are going to suffer pain as a country. And um, we do need to accept that that's going to be the case. And it's the government's job to decide who pays.
1: Well, now there are calls from within the Conservative Party for more to happen, not just from the opposition benches. Jake Berry, the head of the Northern Research Group, which is a press group of Northern Tory MPs, has said we need an emergency budget.
2: This cost of living crisis hasn't decided to sort of conveniently uh, stick to some form of parliamentary timetable. The the issue is now. And so whatever steps the government's going to take, urgency is required. You know, people who can't wait till November to pay their bills they can't businesses can't wait till November to decide whether to give people pay
1: rises or to increase prices action is required now. Well Claire that certainly I think a lot of people in the country would like action now particularly to help with bills and such like if you were sitting in government now what levers would you
5: pull to try and help the people you were
1: talking about at the beginning?
5: I think the first thing that they need to do is recognise that this is hitting millions of people in the wallet now. When we had the Queen's speech a couple of weeks ago, the fact that there was nothing in it, hardly a mention of the cost of living crisis when they read the announcement out. People were outraged. It just looks very much like people who are sitting in the privileged um, surroundings of the Houses of Parliament just aren't aware of how much people's budgets are being squeezed. You know, we've got predictions that four in 10 people could be in fuel poverty by the autumn, which is just unprecedented. So I think for the government, even just handling the PR a bit better, looking like it's seeing to be doing something and exploring solutions while it still has time before... The temperature goes down and the bills go up in October would be a good thing. In terms of some measures that it could look at, the obvious one is uprating benefits. I think you've got politicians of all colours saying this is the sensible thing to do. The complete mess with distributing this £150 rebate through the council tax system just shows you if you want to get money to the people who need it most, looking at universal credit is the easiest way. Now, I know that the Conservatives won't want to bring back that £20 uplift because it was a temporary measure for the pandemic, but that was a national emergency. So is this, I would argue. Maybe it would be more palatable to the Conservatives to look at working people keeping more of their income and changing the universal credit taper again as they did before. Regardless, benefits are really the way that you need to get money to people. There are some other things which I think they should urgently look at, Standing charges on energy bills. Now, this is the fixed amount that you have to pay, whether you're a rich household or a poor household per year, just for the privilege of having gas or electricity coming into your home through a metre. So it's something that really disadvantages Poorer families, could you scrap it for them, or even come up with a new way of calculating bills? because all kinds of things are being added onto to those standing charges with all of the energy companies going bust. It really doesn't seem fair to load that onto the backs of the poorest households. The other thing is, we know with certainty that people are going to get behind with their energy bills. We've heard the energy bosses say in Parliament that this is going to happen. How are we going to tackle these problem debts? We know it's coming. It's really going to affect people's personal finances and it would be great if the government could recognise that and look forward so that people don't have to go through the misery of dealing with bailiffs and all of the mental health and stress that that will provide for families.
1: Now, Chris, the other thing that's certainly a big matter of contention, which we heard reference at the top, is the idea of a windfall tax. And this is Labour's idea to hit the big energy companies with a a one-off tax or increase existing taxes to try and help ease the cost on energy bills. Now, there seems to be quite a lot of debate going on about this. And the, the best I can read of the runes is that number 11 Downing Street, the Treasury think it's inevitable, it's going to happen, and we should just get on with it and figure out how to do it. Whereas number 10 Downing Street in Boris Johnson's team think it's a pretty unconservative thing to do and would pose a problem to business investment. Do you think it's going to happen? And is it, it's obviously good politics, but is it any way it's good economics? I think it is going to happen.
4: And I think it's going to happen because not only is it good politics, but there are not many times when a windfall tax is good economics, but this is the one exception or this is meets the criteria for when a windfall tax would be a good idea. So the only times you'd ever want to retrospectively change the tax system to collect money that you didn't think you needed in advance, but now think you would want, because obviously that gives quite a bad impression, makes you look a little bit like a tin pot third world country that you're changing the tax system retrospectively. The only time when it's in any way justifiable is when it is any reasonable person would say, had we known some piece of information in advance, we would not have had the tax system that we currently have. Had we known Vladimir Putin would invade Ukraine and push up oil and gas prices to unforeseen levels, we would have had a stricter tax regime on the North Sea. We would have had perhaps the 2016 one from that terrible socialist George Osborne, which had a 60% uh, tax rate on the North Sea. You know, it's not at all unreasonable to suggest that that is the sort of tax regime we would have had had we known gas prices would be where they are. After all, it's not the company's gas that they're extracting. It's the nation's gas. So I think we should be clear about that. And we put a tax regime in there, which is essentially to say, let's have a fair share between the companies and the nation. So I don't think there's any problem economically we're doing it in these circumstances as long as you don't make a habit of it. And this government
1: hasn't made a habit of it, so this is just the time you'd want to do it. But Claire, isn't that the problem that obviously we've got inflation now and all the indications from the OBR and the Bank of England and various economists is that it's going to be high and stay high for quite some time. So you do a win tax this year as a one-off, as Chris said, we get to probably this time next year or next autumn, inflation is still high. And at that point, people are saying, well, why don't we just do this again? And that's not an easy place to be really, is it, for a government? And that's, I think, why there is some hesitation that you know if you become too popular about these things, and you get stuck in this rut.
5: Absolutely, seven The same goes for the idea that's being put around by the boss of Scottish Power, that you have a £1,000 deficit fund for all households in fuel poverty. And that's paid to them in October. It's a pretty harsh dividing line because there's lots of people who may be on the cusp of fuel property but wouldn't get that. But nevertheless, I can foresee that harsh energy bills are not just going to be a problem for this winter, they're going to be a problem for next winter, and maybe even the winter after that. So a plan where you loan households a £1,000 and charge it back to them over 10 years, there's a limit to how many times you can do that. Now, there's one rather obvious problem, which the government has been skirting around for some time, which is the problem of our housing stock in the UK and the need to insulate it. Now, we've had all kinds of grants in the past, before the pandemic, before the Ukraine war, um, the Green Homes Grant, things like that, which haven't really worked, in some cases have been stopped before they've got going. But the reason why that's been a policy is because Ministers recognise it is a problem. We are losing so much heat from our homes, especially the kind of homes that the poorest people are likely to live in, ironically. So a mass housing insulation drive, maybe it would be better to spend money on that, because then you're saving money and CO2 emissions for people year after year after year. And there's one particular group of people who that would really help, and that's those who are renting. Um, I'm speaking to a listener on Money Clinic next week, who is terrified to speak to her landlord about the horrific drafts that she's experiencing in her very nice looking but freezing Victorian converted property. Because at the moment, if she complains, asks him to do something, he could just issue her with a no-fault eviction get her out, get somebody else in. Now, I know in the Queen's speech, they've promised to do away with those, but that's going to take time. But for the millions of people who are renting from private landlords, they have so little agency to do anything to try and stop the gaps, quite literally, and get their heating bills down. And when you're looking at heating bills of thousands of pounds a year, this is a real issue. And
1: finally, Chris, we're recording this on Friday morning. I think you and I have both picked up that something is in the works of the Treasury, probably due to come next week. I argued my column this week that they should do an immediate uprating of universal credit to be in line with inflation and have that to follow the rise in the fuel cap. I think it's probably unlikely the Treasury will do that because that's not the sort of thing the Treasury likes doing. But what do you think might actually be on the cards as well as that potential windfall tax?
4: Well, I think uprating of benefits, particularly universal credit, which they absolutely can do. There's none of this computer says no business on that benefit, at least. Absolutely. Uh, That is the obvious thing, because at least you then, for poorer working age families, you at least compensate them for inflation, which is what you would do anyway, but it would come next April. So it just brings that forward. It doesn't have any long term public finance Consequences at all. You just say we're going to bring that forward. So it has a one-off additional borrowing you have to do through because you'd you'd uprate later on. That just seems to be a complete no-brainer. I think a windfall tax would be very sensible. Let's let's be absolutely clear. Windfall taxes and maybe changing the North Sea tax regime for the future as well. That will help, but because we are energy importers in this country, it is not going to mean that everyone could be subsidized and no one's going to take any pain at all. That That's cloud cookie land. And there, Rishi Sunati is entirely correct, saying there will be pain and there's not anything the government can do to cushion everyone against that. But you need to target it. So I think benefits is the obvious way because they are already targeted on the poor. But other than that, you might well think about some more flat rate benefits through things like council tax, which look quite clever, but I think as Claire's been explaining, it's, once it, it's clever on paper, but once it gets down to local authorities actually having to deliver it, it gets a lot more complicated, and more difficult. So, you know... Don't invent anything new. Just use what you've got and what you can do quickly. And we know you can do universal credit quickly. Pensions is the other thing and that's harder to do quickly. But it's not impossible. It is not the, it's a computer that stems back to 1988, the basic state pension computer. And I think you have to turn it off and, and recode it at the weekend and do all that. But, you know, government has got a lot of civil servants who can work at weekends and will do that if they are required to do that so it requires the political will to do that and those are the obvious things you want you want to do that would have a direct impact and quickly
1: well there you are and if the chancellor is Sunak happens to be listening to this there is the exact formula that he should follow next week chris and claire thank you very much for joining us and that's it for this week's episode of Payne's politics if you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thank you for listening.